Hello and welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. I am Zach Faulkner-Barfield, founder of, of The Perfect Gentleman, and alongside me is... James Marwood. Good to speak to you again, Zach. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I'm splendid. I'm a little bit sore because I did a big workout yesterday. I'm very glad I'm not in the office today because I can't reach my arms up high enough to tie my tie. <laughs> but aside from that, I'm all good. Excellent. I've decamped to sunny and glorious Kent for oh, the month of July. Uh, dog sitting, my mother's dog, which is very lovely. Which Definitely. means I have a lovely house and a garden and it's actually sunny, which is lovely. This is the time of year for it. I was in London last week and it was horribly hot and horribly sticky and unpleasant. And I think sitting in a garden with a dog in Kent sounds much more fun. Yes, much better. <laughs> Excellent. So what's on the agenda for today then, Zach? What news do we have? We have a few bits of news. Last month, June, was mm. Men's Fashion Week around the world. Started with uh, London and London Collections Men's, then mm-hmm. moved on to uh, Florence, I think it's Florence, with, with Pitti Umo, the Italian Men's Fashion Week, and then finished in Paris uh, with, they just call it Fashion Week, <laughs> yes. for men in Paris, which is actually what the... London Fashion Week is going to be called next year, but that's a whole... Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. Yeah, they've, they've sort of called it Fashion Week Men's from next okay. year, which I think is a bit strange. I, I thought I liked London Collections, actually. But yes, anyway. yeah, LCM, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I thought we'd have a little recap mm-hmm. about that and uh, see what your thoughts were about what was on the catwalks of London, Milan and Paris. What I tend to find is London varies between heavy tailoring and then really avant-garde men's fashion. Florence and, and Pitomo is very traditional, lots of tailoring, lots of very interesting, bold colours, as usual with Italians, yes. but much more traditional tailoring. And then Paris tends to be a little bit of everything and some weirdness thrown in for good measure. That's a good summary. One of the things I always like looking at when it comes to these shows is not so much the collections themselves, which can be there can be some really cool ones, but the people who go along, and that's been the traditional looking at the sort of the, the pity peacocks, for example. But this year... I feel like I overdosed a bit. I feel like we hit, I don't know, I want to be too mean with this, but kind of peak preening. Everything just seemed a little bit overdone and a little bit forced on there. So we'll um, let's talk about the shows then. We'll come on to those. What shows caught your eyes, Zach? Well, actually, not very many this year, I think. And also, okay. well, no, what was really interesting is that all the interesting ones are actually not shows. Okay. You know, not catwalk shows. They're, all three of them, actually, both LCM, Pitomo and, and Paris, tended to do a lot more installations or events and showcases mm-hmm. rather than catwalk shows. I think what was interesting this year there was German Street getting involved mm. uh, in LCM and doing a live open to the public catwalk show unfortunately it rained both days but that's, yes, that's England that's for you in June um, I think that was really interesting much more involvement with that what we miss out on in London which they get very well in Pitomo is there is that sort of centre of it mm. so you do see the peacocks you do see the people dressed up and, and the yeah. fashionistas in one place and the same yes. is almost true for Paris as well it's in one sort of heavily accented place whereas mm-hmm. London tends to be a little bit all over the shop I mean they do have a centred sure. venue but it tends to be a little bit more over the place. I think it's a lot more fashion this year, certainly from even the big brands um, in Milan. uh, There was a lot more fashion. A lot of bold colours, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Some very weird stuff with socks and sandals. Yes, never good. Just no, it's not right. Please don't do it. Uh, (laughs) Apart from a few shows in London, there wasn't a lot of what I would call traditional style and tailoring around. Lots of sort of punk inspired stuff i saw mm. that's london but it just the thing with a lot of that is i think it you know it harks back to classic punk which is which is cool but it's all quite 
I don't know. It's it. We've done that, and it was interesting, and it was fun. But London's more than that. I did see some interesting sort of streetwear that wasn't punk inspired. Dussie did some stuff in Comme des Garçons, hmm. and streetwear's not really my thing. But I have friends who are who are really into it. It should be new and edgy, not just this kind of melange of seventies and eighties punk, which was just a bit felt a bit lazy. If I'm honest, I looked at most of the shows and nothing really kind of went. Oh wow, that's really cool this year. Mm. Or was really avant-garde. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a street style or a fashionista. I mean, I'm I'm much more a very classical style person. But it kind of felt a bit flat this year, and which is really strange considering how booming menswear is as an industry. Although there was one thing that did gladden my heart. Mostly, I think I saw it in the pictures from Pity, but in London as well, which were pleats. In trousers. Yes. Which make me so happy. <laughs> Ever since, um, I think it was Hedy Slimane at Dior did that urchin suit thing. Yes. Slightly cut off trousers, everything a bit too tight. Pleats have been a real fashion crime. They've been considered by fashionistas, at least, akin to socks and sandals or what have you, which is so wrong. <laughs> so wrong. Done badly, they look terrible. If you think about the sort of boxy chinos that are the kind of generic business casual wear in a lot of the world, especially in the US, in the UK as well, you know, where you have these these massively boxy pleats and then pockets full of stuff and all that. That looks terrible. I'll agree with, with, with everyone on that. But pleats are almost always, in my opinion, going to look better than plain flat fronts, especially on fabric with a little bit of weight to it, like flannel or tweed or a weighty worsted, something like that. I love pleats. I have pleats in almost all of my trousers, certainly all the trousers I have made, and I'm so glad to see them come back. Yes, that's a good thing. I'm not a fan of the ultra-skinny trouser. I think, um, again, we come back to this thing we talked about before. You've got to have pretty good legs to wear really skinny trousers. Yes. And a particularly good bottom. And also you have to think about what you're wearing on the top as well because it narrows your focus so much Mm -hmm. to your legs. Your top tends to be really important and your shoes. The amount of times I see people in very skinny trousers, even on the fashionista side, who look not at their best. Yes. Generally, the really skinny trousers, we've banged on this drum many, many times, but they tend to be cut really short. Yes. Which is a problem if you're doing more than just standing. So as you're getting up and getting down and moving around, if you're not wearing shirt stays, your shirt's going to end up all over the place. If you've got any kind of stomach at all, with it kind of sticking under your tummy, which doesn't look great, it also, it just feels so uncomfortable. Everything kind of gets bunched up around your middle, around the tops of your legs. It's just, just no. There's a reason that we developed trousers to sit, sit on your natural waist, to have pleats and to drape nicely. And it's because it looks good and is comfortable. You can play and you can have like the sort of the, that 90s thing of big pleats and really baggy trousers and they didn't look great, but at least they look better to me than none at all. It's just, yeah, it's just unfortunate. But hopefully, pleats, slightly high waists, coming back as well. <laughs> Elliot Rhodes is the foremost belt brand that seeks to make people see belts in a whole new way and to show them that a great belt is imperative to dressing with style and individuality. With four stores, three in London and one in Japan, Elliott Rhodes belts are bespoke and innovative. They create beautiful luxury leather belts and buckles in a wide variety of colours and textures and styles. They suit all tastes. Check them out at elliotrhodes.com. We should go on to our other thing that we saw in the news about the seven outdated men's style rules that they say you can ignore, which appeared in Business Insider UK and came from Complex, I think. 
Business Insider are, are notorious for this, so apologies to the guy complex because they will lift to the people's content. But it's a good article. You know, it's a fun list. It's a fun list. And there's a couple of things I just completely disagree with. Well, of course, of course, because <laughs> they're wrong. But, uh, but let's go through what they are. So uh, I'll start. Rule one, don't wear white after Labor Day or before Memorial Day. I never understood that rule. It's an American thing obviously by the name. And yes, I don't really get it. You know, it makes sense to wear white in the summer and when the situation requires it. Mm. That's it. That's the rule. Does it look good? Does it fit the rest of your outfit? Does it go with the ambience and the type of event you're going to? That's it. It was, as I understand it, wearing white was a sign of, of wealth because it meant that you could have clean clothes. But I don't wear a lot of white. Do you, Zach? I do during the summer, mm-hmm. and I have about three or four pairs of white trousers and a couple of white jackets, and I kind of wear those, especially when I'm on holiday, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the next section. Don't tend to wear them as often, only because it get, they get so dirty in the city. I have a couple of pairs of cream trousers. In fact, I have an amusing anecdote on that. I have a pair of cream trousers, which were from a particular cream flannel, a fleck cream flannel that Fox did in uh, the West London fabric mill. They'd stopped doing it, and I tracked some of this fox flannel down that I'd been looking for for ages in the US. And so I paid to have it shipped over, paid the shipping, paid the tax to have it come back into the country, took it to my tailors, had it made up, was having, having a fitting, and one of the chaps from the, the fabric merchants came and said, oh, you've, you've got some of that flannel. I didn't think anyone had it yet. What, what do you mean yet? And it turned out they'd reissued it. <laughs> so, yeah, so I spent ages tracking it down, paying all the odds to get it, and I could have just waited a week and got it straight from Fox. But such is life. Such is life, yes. But I think, what, especially if you're going to wear white trousers specifically, I, I'd certainly yeah. wear ones that you could wash frequently. I wouldn't do a wool or a wool stick no. or anything like that. I'd be certainly making sure it's linen or cotton or, or something that you can actually throw in the, the washing machine. Mine are just for special occasions. They don't get the way I would, I would like to just because of that fact. But anyway, wear white whenever you like as long as it goes yeah so we agree with that one rule number two always match your belt with your shoes Mm. (laughs) so give give me your take on this Zach because I know you have a strong opinion here I do have a strong opinion I think all the leather should match so if you're wearing leather shoes and a leather belt and a leather strapped watch let's just assume that that's the case Mm -hmm. then they should all match I mean, they don't have to be perfectly correct in the sense mm-hmm. they don't have to match perfectly. But if you're wearing brown shoes, then it should be a brown belt with a brown leather strap on your watch. And the same for black. Mm-hmm. There is a reason for that. The reason is if you mix the belt up with the shoes, specifically the belt with the shoes, it breaks the eye line. Yeah. You notice it. It really kind of offsets the outfit quite drastically, in my opinion. I tend to agree. I think, I think for leather, definitely. Especially if you're wearing, as you say, uh, black or brown, or if you've got maybe dark brown shoes and a tan belt. Everything just looks a little bit off when you wear that. For more casual wear, much more flexible. For example, I have a couple of woven fabric belts that I often wear in in the summer. And then I wear those with jeans or with shorts or um, linen trousers. And I'm much less fussy with those. It's more casual. I'm generally wearing brighter colours anyway. I don't think that's such a big issue. The picture that Business Insider have, have chosen are of a, a light tan belt and a pair of quite dark brown shoes. They don't go. No, they don't. Rule three then, Zach. Rule three, always wear socks with pants. And, and this is, of course, trousers for our English listeners. I, I don't know about you, but this is um, caveated. Mm. I think socks with formal wear, absolutely. Socks yes. with informal wear... You can have a bit of flexibility on that one. Yes. I frequently, especially on holiday, don't wear socks. I sometimes wear invisible socks. But if I'm wearing a formal outfit, 
Absolutely. I would never, ever not wear socks. Absolutely. Yesterday was quite a warm day here. I had to shoot up to see a pal of mine and I had just had on a pair of linen trousers and I just slipped on some suede loafers. Didn't put any socks on and I'm I'm quite comfortable with that. I'm wearing blue suede loafers. They're not formal in any setting. But the picture that they've chosen here is of a guy wearing brogues with no socks. All I can do is point back to Bruce Boyer's advice from Timeless Style, I think it was. That's the sort of thing worn by the sort of chap who would accidentally sit on the wrong end of a shooting stick. It looks stupid. Oh, we're one of three at the moment. Rule number four, always wear a belt if your trousers have belt loops. I think this really depends on how well cut your trousers are. Absolutely. If you're buying off the peg trousers that don't fit you very well, wear a belt. Um, If they're purposely cut for you and you've got belt loops on, you don't have to wear a belt. Yeah. But I think sometimes it looks a bit funny if you don't wear a belt when you have belt loops on your trousers. You know, I prefer to wear trousers with braces rather than the belt. Me too. I think think trousers look better suspended from from the shoulders rather than cinched around the waist. But... Not everyone likes them, and they are a bit of a faff. So, so my casual trousers almost all are there with belts. Now, I will very rarely wear trousers without, but that's because of my big tummy. So they tend to slip down if I don't do that. There are, for example, quite a few chaps I work with who are quite trim, and they tend to either have their trousers tailored traditionally with, with side adjusters or dax adjusters and no belt loops, or they don't wear belts. And I think if you're quite trim and the trousers fit fine, it looks fine to me. The way it becomes a problem is when it causes your trousers to keep slipping down and then you're constantly hiking them up and then your shirt gets all a bit of a mess and your, your tie's never quite at the right length for your trousers and it all just looks bad. If you don't like belts and you're not in good shape, wear braces. Braces are brilliant. I'm a big fan of braces like you. I think every suit now that I own has braces. If if your trousers fit properly and you're quite trim, I'd say I'm I'm quite relaxed about it, personally. I'm not so fussed about this one. It's very vague as a rule. Yes. All the rules about dressing come down to do you feel good in what you wear and are you dressed suitably for the occasion you're going to? So long as you're hitting those two, it's all a matter of personal preference anyway. If you look good, you feel good. Go for your life. Absolutely. So rule number five, match your trousers to your socks. Which actually most people don't do anyway. Most people match their socks to their shoes. Right. I think that's a mistake. What do you think on that one, Zach? Traditionally, you should match your pants to your socks or your trousers to your socks. Socks to your trousers, should I say, the other way around. Or the rule is, as far as I was always taught, it's either your socks should match your trousers or should make a statement. Exactly. Uh, But not match your shoes? No. Now, the reasoning for this is quite straightforward. When you match your socks to your trousers, it extends the line of your leg and makes you look taller and slimmer. Yes. Which is one of the jobs the suit does anyway. They make your trousers and your leg look longer. When you match your socks to your shoes, it makes your feet look bigger and your legs look shorter, which is not a great look. But statement socks, you often wear these, Zach. What's your... (laughs) I always wear statement socks. Yes. My understanding is back in the day, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, men would be displaying their ankles as a sign of beauty and you would be highlighting your ankles with coloured hose. Yes. And that comes back to that point. You're highlighting your ankles. If you have good feet and ankles, then wear statement socks. And your eye gets drawn to it. So it's a talking Mm -hmm. point. Yes. You know, I frequently get commented on my bold socks. And I think that's kind of a nice statement. But you should make it correct. I mean, if you're going to make bold socks, match it with a pocket square or something else that's on your body so it kind of doesn't 
completely jar you out of, of line. And it depends on the circumstance. If you're going to a big boardroom meeting or you're going to a funeral especially or, you know, or, or you're going to something which is a relatively staid and sombre affair, then I probably wouldn't wear statement socks. But for every day in the office, after having admired yours many times, <laughs> I've been wearing them much more often. And they're fun. You know, so long as you follow the same sort of principles as you would do with your tie or your pocket square. So not matching perfectly, but complementing each other, complementing or contrasting the colours of your suit and not totally overdone yes so this rule wrong sorry we want to keep this one or we add to that or wear bold socks that makes perfect sense yeah and then we i think we've covered the next rule rule number six never wear pleated trousers i think well fire on you people who dislike pleated trousers you're wrong 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 exactly and then rule number seven this is another strange one never wear black with blue or brown um really one of the things i think you need to watch for when you're wearing black blue or brown together is having the tones matching too closely, especially if you're wearing trousers and jacket. It's one of the reasons why dark blue trousers are quite hard to wear. They end up looking like divorced pieces of a suit. And so if you're wearing, for example, a dark blue blazer with black trousers, it kind of looks like it should match but doesn't, and it just looks a little bit jarring. You want a little bit more contrast for that. I think, for example, I saw a chap the other week who had a dark brown suit, cream shirt, and a black knitted grenadine tie, and he looked fantastic. It just looked so stylish, so simple, so elegant. Something a little bit Connery Bond about it. Understand why colours go together, and you don't need these rules. Yeah, I think this is true. I think some of those rules you should keep, about half of them, and the rest we agree you can get rid of, but with caveats. One of the good things is it's something Simon Compton talks about on his blog, Permanent Style. You can get rid of the rules or break the rules once you understand them. And you can say, actually, no, because of this reason. Absolutely. So... We, we mostly agree with you, but not, not entirely. Exactly. The next piece of news I adore, and then we were oh. just talking about this off- yes. offline, and we, you and I both do similar things. Yes. So, but the, the granny that searches on Google with please and thank you. Oh, bless her. I love that. And she frames the whole thing as a, as a question, like, please could I have this... Thank you. Exactly. It's just so lovely. I think it's beautiful. And you and I were talking about this because you and I both get giggled at because I say please and thank you to Siri. Me too. It is something that that I do get looked askance at, even a little bit sometimes by Siri or where it comes up on the screen saying what you've said and sometimes she'll just miss the please off. I think we should get bonus points from Google and Apple. Absolutely. For saying please and thank you. In fact, maybe they should actually only give you higher rated rankings and, and help you more if you say please and thank you. I think that's only fair. I think it would actually instill manners in the millennial generation. I would definitely go for that. Now, please and thank you doesn't hurt. It doesn't cost anything. Because you and I are ingrained to do it anyway. We yes. do it naturally. So when you're actually talking to someone to ask for something, I just will always say please and thank you, even if it's a it's an AI program on my phone. But no, good on that, Granny. We like her. Well done. And talking about digital arty, and you were talking about the social media etiquette. Yes, there was an interesting article, Social Media Etiquette 101, Stop Sharing So Much and Never Air Your Dirty Laundry, and that was on entrepreneur.com. It's a video with Savannah Sanchez and and, and Drew Johnson from a a, a Californian marketing company, and their point is it doesn't do you any favours 
and it's an imposition on your friends to share your dirty laundry, to have arguments, to mourn, to, to use social media, to express upset that you've got with friends or things like that or partners. It's uncomfortable for everybody. Nobody likes it, so don't do it. I have this thing that people forget that the internet is a public forum. Mm -hmm. People say things on the internet that they would never say in public. Yes. But they'll quite happily put it on Facebook where several hundred friends can see. It is strange. And one of the things I think this often leads to is vague booking, Hmm. the sort of passive-aggressive, backhanded comments. If you're upset with somebody and you want to, to talk to them about it, talk to them about it like a grown-up if you don't want to do that then probably you aren't that upset and you probably should live and let live if you have a problem and you need support and you need to talk to your friends that's what friends are for and absolutely you should do that writing about your relationship problems or your work problems or difficulties that you've had on social media and throwing that into everyone's timeline it's just uncomfortable. Uh, we, we're very apolitical on, on The Perfect Gentleman mm-hmm. and we, we don't talk about politics per se. But the interesting thing, Brexit, of course, has been a huge topic across the world. Mm-hmm. But the one thing which really interested me was the vitriol, the vehemence, the, the complete breaking down of this social, this etiquette yes. on social media between people across the board. Leave Remain doesn't make any difference. Both people on both some of their timelines on social media were appalling. There was a really good article. You know about the concept of filter bubbles and the idea that in order to keep you looking and to keep you clicking, social media networks will show you things you like. You tend to end up in this bubble where you don't see anybody who disagrees with you. And when you sit in that filter bubble and you're part of that you know, sociologists would call it in groups or you could think of it in terms of tribes. Basically, everybody I know agrees with me and I don't know anyone who disagrees with me. And I think that's one of the reasons why people get so surprised by elections going different ways. It's actually quite dangerous because we, we look at somebody who has a different view to us or a different opinion and we paint them with a really broad brush and we say that's because you're racist or stupid or you don't understand economics or you you don't care about people or whatever and that's just not true the person on the other end of that article or that link or that meme is a person just like you and probably it's one of your friends if it's on social media or it's a friend of a friend and so it's somebody who if you if you're talking to face to face you wouldn't do that it's a very healthy exercise to just talk to other people and to listen to what they have to say and not argue with it. Come back to one of our favourite themes we've talked about, I think, I'm sure we've talked about this before, is that that famous thing from Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends yes. and Influence People. Everyone is a hero in their own tale. Absolutely. Every villain is a hero in their own movie. You can disagree with someone. Mm-hmm. You can't sit there and say that their, their opinion is, is stupid just because they have a different opinion. You have to understand their motivations, their reasonings. And I always try, and I don't always succeed, but I always attempt to look at everything from that person's point of view. It's really interesting. There's another podcaster, a guy called John Syracuse, who's a sort of tech podcaster and writes reviews of operating systems and things. He's also a really involved gamer, and he made this really brilliant piece. And I've asked him a couple of times to write it down, and he seems to be too busy to do it, unfortunately, because I would like to share it with more people. That particular argument was about sexist and racist bullying on online gaming, things like that. So many of the arguments said, well, I've never seen it, so therefore it doesn't happen. And it's like, well, it may be that it doesn't happen or that it happens less than is claimed, but 
you're not doing yourself or the argument or the, the overall state of things any good by just jumping to that conclusion. He challenged people in this space, and it's a challenge I took up, and it actually was very useful to deliberately follow people whose opinions you disagree with for a year and don't comment, don't respond, don't disagree, just listen. And I think that is such a good exercise. Sean Blander, who's the guy who wrote that article I mentioned called The Other Side Is Not Dumb, describes this game called Controversial Opinion, where you do it with friends, you don't talk about anything afterwards. One person shares a controversial opinion and you can ask me questions about it, but you can't tell me I'm wrong. It's almost like being the devil's advocate. It is. If we talk about about manners and etiquette, well, obviously we we don't want to, to, to have arguments or fallings out, especially not over trivial things. But also from the point of view of actually looking to change someone's mind, if you push against someone, they just become even more entrenched. As you said, with Dale Carnegie and his views, or Stephen Covey's listen first and seek to understand, there's a reason that these approaches work and have worked throughout history, because they're the best ones to do. Otherwise, you just end up in your little filter bubble saying... Isn't that other guy an idiot? I'm going off topic a little bit here, but, but one of my rules of networking was always go to networking industries that I have no interest in. Yes. I want to get other people's thoughts and opinions mm-hmm. and understand where they're coming from. Uh, even if it doesn't affect me directly, it broadens my knowledge and it broadens my understanding. And therefore, if you wish to change that person's opinion, then you're able to by understanding it. Yes. The immovable object and the unstoppable force otherwise. Absolutely. If you do that with an open mind, there's always the possibility that your own views will change, which is can only be a good thing. If you've listened to arguments, you've thought things through, and you think, actually, you know what? I thought X, but now I think Y, unless we're talking about pleats. In which case, do not <laughs> listen to anyone else and have pleats. Um, but... <laughs> Right. And on, and on that note, I think we'll stop with the news okay. and, and we shall move on to talk about our, our stylish gentleman section because July is our holiday time. So we're going to talk a little bit about holiday style. Our partners, Hawes and Curtis, are a British brand with more than 100 years of heritage and tailoring. In 1913, Ralph Hawes and George Frederick Curtis opened their first store in London's Piccadilly Arcade at the corner of German Street, renowned for its resident shirt makers. From the beginning, Hawes and Curtis attracted famous clientele, including the Duke of Windsor, Cary Grant and Fred Astaire, dapper gentlemen all. As a result of Hawes and Curtis's commitment to impeccable service and product excellence, the brand has been awarded four royal warrants. Today, Hawes and Curtis offers extensive menswear and women's wear collections, providing customers with complete looks for a whole variety of occasions. Please head over to their website, www.hawesandcurtis.co.uk. Do you have a specific holiday style, James? It very much depends where I'm going, and it really comes down to the weather. But generally, when I'm on holiday, I tend to wear short sleeve shirts in loose materials and either linen or cotton shorts or casual trousers. And I'll normally have a a blazer or a sport coat for the evening. If I'm out and about in the countryside, then I'll wear walking type clothing. It's comfortable, it's relatively smart and it's cool, which is often the best thing. Do you travel a lot these days, Zach? I haven't been on summer holiday for a little while. The life of the self-employed entrepreneur. Exactly. But no, I tend to, I've always, when I've travelled before, I've travelled, have travelled a lot and, and, and been around the world a few times. It was always very funny because I would go on holiday and people would um, not assume I was British because I was always dressed 
well on holiday in like very touristy summery places and i'd be like wearing as you say linen trousers with a shirt and and Mm -hmm. in the evening i'd be wearing a jacket Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's kind of one of those things where people just look at you slightly sideways when you're walking around a touristy beach resort somewhere and you're dressed properly i think that's kind of sad that i'm the the exception Mm -hmm. my guilty pleasure though james my guilty pleasure is hawaiian shirts you have mentioned this before yes so i have quite a few hawaiian shirts (laughs) fantastic I, i don't have that many i have about what do i have now i have probably about 10 that's a healthy collection that's a good number yeah Thank you. I don't go on holiday terribly often, but I do travel an awful lot. So I can give some advice on traveling in style. So I normally fly quite a bit and I'm normally in hotels about 200 nights a year, most years. Um, I tend to do most of my traveling now by train or by plane, although for a lot of years I drove wherever I could. So I've got some bits of advice for how to travel in style. So I'll run through these and you can tell me what you think. The first thing for me is... Travel is, especially by plane, it's stressful and it can be dehumanising as you're treated like cattle and ferried here, there and everywhere. So I tend to try and pick the times where I travel, where it'll be a little bit less busy and I'll have to do a little bit less queuing. If I'm flying, that normally means trying not to fly on a Monday morning or a Friday evening. If it means I have to get there a little bit early and maybe have an extra night, if I'm going to travel in, in the very early morning rather than late, I would much rather do that and avoid some of the having to stand on the train, for example, as, as I get into London. So that's my first hint. If you can do, pick a time to travel when you'll be less stressful generally. It also makes a difference in price. One little hint is, generally speaking, you'll often find that the first flight of an off-peak bunch so in the uk for example off peak normally starts at 9 30 for most of the train companies so the 9 35 train will be absolutely rammed full of people but the 9 45 will be quiet for the sake of 10 minutes just take the quieter one i sometimes do the reverse of that i'll take the earliest train possible where no one's going to be on it except the really sad people like me. Well, that's normally me on a Monday morning at 5am at, at Durham train station. Yeah. Get in the first train. There's about six or seven of us chaps who do this at the same time. We all sort of get on, get a bacon sandwich and go to sleep. Because also then there's no one disturbing you and you get into London and you can start sort of sorting yourself out. Yeah. Another thing I like to do, and I do this for pretty much every journey I do now, even my regular weekly trips to London or to Manchester or wherever, is I do a little summary travel document, just listing where I'm going to be staying, any ticket reference numbers I have. If I'm going abroad, I'll have things like my passport number on there, the numbers for my credit card companies, my insurance company, all of those. And I tend to keep them on a piece of paper. I don't often do the piece of paper printout if I'm just traveling in the UK, but if I'm going abroad, I do. But also I keep it in an online service like Dropbox or Google Docs or Evernote or something like that. When I land in some airport in the middle of another country and the driver isn't there to collect me from the hotel or my credit card stops working as I try to check out and I'm in a hurry. That's not the time I want to be trying to find any of this. So it's all there to hand. Advantage of a piece of paper, of course, is when you're in, as happened to me when I was in a hotel in Budapest a few years ago, no Wi-Fi, no phone signal, and the credit card company helpfully decided that I shouldn't be allowed to pay for things. And I had to pay my my three weeks hotel bill. I had to go and find a bank and take money out from the cash point to pay it by cash because I didn't have any of these things ready. So having that stuff ready ahead of time, 10-minute job, really useful. I'm a great believer in paper and online always back it up and always take the paper i always print it off and take the paper yep take take the paper and even just simple things like traveling on an e-ticket that's on your telephone it's really easy that almost always works great for me on the trip out 
when I get to the airport or I get to the station and I've got my little thing on the front of my phone and I just blip under the scanner and away, brilliant. On the way back, I'm always nervous my battery's going to die because normally after I've done a day in the office or I've been, been out somewhere and suddenly I've got to show this boarding pass three times and I've got 6% battery and it all gets a bit nervous. When it comes to packing, are you able to get much success from rolling things, Zach? Yes. Right. I'm jealous and somewhat in awe because I can never get it to work, but I know people who can. So do you want to talk us through how you do that? It really depends on what I'm travelling for. Yep. I learned my packing skills many, many years ago when I was travelling a hell of a lot. Nowadays, I've discovered little boxes, little fold-away boxes. They're fantastic as well for, for packing. I use those all the time. But rolling is really simple. I'm always a thing of, of, of on the packing front using everything. So shoes get stuffed with socks and underwear and belts. And so you're using the space of the shoe. Plus also it means that you don't have to take your shoe tree with you. And for ties, it means they don't get crushed. Um, for rolling, it depends. I think we probably have to do some videos on this. There's a number of different ways to roll different things. So trousers are rolled in a very specific way as opposed to shirts and so on and so forth. I kind of don't care about the crumpling because especially if I'm going to a hotel, hopefully there'll be an eye there so i can always press everything or iron everything once i get there so i'm not so worried about it having a bit of a, a crease in it um I, I care more about it fitting into the bag i tend to roll jeans t-shirts gym cage things like that my shirts i fold i have a little shirt envelope that i really mm, like that's very useful. really really useful my mum bought it for me when i was 23 and i first started traveling and i've probably used it at least once a month since then. Suits have a particular way of being folded. I was shown by my tailor. You want your jacket to be effectively inside out. Turn the shoulders inside out and then holding the jacket up, fold the jacket lengthways. We don't want any creases in, so you want it to kind of bend rather than fold. Took one shoulder into the other and that just keeps that 3D shoulder pad protected and it stops the chest from getting all crushed at that point lie the jacket down make sure everything's nice and smooth and then fold it lengthways and that's normally what goes on top of my suitcase i have discovered which we'll probably have to do on a video i've discovered how to roll jackets as well oh, okay you do that bit and then you roll up from the bottom so you roll to the shoulder yeah so the shoulder stays intact but you've rolled the bottom so you don't have any hard creases in it the only thing that would make me a little nervous on that would be what happens to the interlining, because it might put a bit of pressure on that. But we can see it when we do. One important thing is not to button stuff before you fold it, because that will pull and stretch. Now, my next bit of advice really goes with flying rather than anything else, but it's to try as much as possible just to take carry-on and not check luggage if you can avoid it. Do you do this, Zach? Again, we come back to it very much depends how long I'm going for mm. more than anything else. Um, if it's a couple of days, absolutely. If it's longer than a couple of days, to be honest, I don't care. Because you know, if I'm carrying two suits and jackets and, and everything else, and, and I think, oh, God, I'll just, take, I'll just check in. It's not, I'm not so worried about that. Um, but uh, no, I'm not so worried about that one can normally manage up to about 10 days for a business trip in carry-on and that involves getting laundry and things done at the other end the thing that always makes me nervous and where and, and the reason i tend to even if i am checking luggage i always take a change of clothes in my carry-on is because i've had luggage go missing many times i've had luggage damaged many times and i've had luggage broken into many times and especially if i'm going through countries where this is a particular problem Anytime that I can possibly get away with not checking, 
I won't. There's nothing worse than kind of getting to the carousel and waiting until everybody else has got their bags and gone and realising that, oh no, I'm going to be wearing today's pants again tomorrow. Take a spare set. Carry a clean pair of underwear and a a change of shirt in in one's carry-on for sure. Yes, absolutely. Final hint, which is how you dress when you're travelling. I dropped the Duchess to the train station this morning and she was getting an early train down down to Southampton. And there was a guy in front of me with his wife and his daughter. He's probably a chap in his 40s, a little bit older than me. And he had flip-flops on, which... We know how we feel about flip-flops. But as well as being ugly and stupid, they are incredibly impractical for carrying luggage on and off trains. Anything. Carrying luggage full stop. Yes. And here was this guy who was trying to step up, you know, probably a foot or so from the platform to the train, get his luggage up, get his wife's luggage up, get his daughters up, and then switching around. And it was all... And doing this in flip-flops just looked dangerous. He was having terrible problems. He He did at one point nearly slip between... And him and his wife were arguing and it was all a bit stressful. If he dressed a bit more smartly, he wouldn't have had that problem. And that's not to say that you have to wear formal clothes to travel and you should be comfortable. And especially if you're going to be spending 12 hours on a plane somewhere, you don't want to be in a heavy suit or anything. As with anything else, dressing smartly shows respect for yourself and for those around you. It has practical benefits, but also, and this is something I've noticed a few times, it does help with the occasional upgrade. There is evidence that the smarter you dress, the more likely you are to be upgraded. Absolutely. The politer you are as well, the more likely you are to be upgraded. Um, A mentor of mine, uh, who I shall refer to as Jeffrey, Jeffrey um, always said to me, dear boy, you've got to travel as though you're flying first class in the 1950s. It's like... (laughs) He goes, then they'll treat you like you're flying first class in the 1950s. I was like, okay, I don't totally agree with that, but I will always wear trousers. I will always wear proper shoes. I will always wear a shirt. I will always wear a jacket. I'll tailor what I'm wearing for my end destination in the sense of, like, you know, I won't wear big, heavy clothes for traveling to 40 degree heat, but I will always wear that. Also, the practicalities of carrying a jacket. I've got my passport in it. I've got my wallet in it. I don't have to faff through a bag to get my passport out. I just, it's out with the ticket. You've got useful pockets. Yeah. Absolutely. Dress well when you're travelling and it just makes everything a little bit easier. So if you want more information about holiday style and what we sort of recommend for holiday style, do take a look at the Perfect Gentleman magazine, which is out now. Um, James's article is in there and my article about summer style and what we wear on holiday. So please take a look at that. You can find that either on theperfectgentleman.tv or codeofthegentleman.com on both either website you'll find the link to the magazine do contact us on social media uh, instagram it's the p gentleman twitter it's the p gentlemen you can catch us on uh, facebook snapchat where well, we haven't done any snapping yet but you can catch us on there and various other social media mediums or drop us an email at inquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv so one last thing to have a quick chat about before we go off to our interview grooming on holiday we won't bore you to death and bang on about sunblock but to get some and wear some even if you think you don't need it you do you don't want to be a lobster and you don't want to be sitting there going ow 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 for the first three days of your holiday and this is me as a man who got sunburn on boxing day december 26th for our american cousins in a restaurant in spain sat outside a restaurant and I end up with a sunburned forehead and I looked like a prat the rest of the holiday. Sunblock. Sunblock all the time. <laughs> I reduced the factor over a course of time, but I, I always wear sunblock. Um, so, so I have a question. So proper holiday, you're away. Yep. Do you shave? What is your general grooming routine when you're on holiday holiday? It depends where I'm staying. 
if I'm staying at a reasonable quality chain hotel where I know they'll have toiletries, often I'll only pack the bare essentials for me. I'll take my toothbrush, I'll take my razor, and I'll probably take some some hair gel because they never have, have that. But in terms of shower gel and what have you, often I'll just use what the hotel provides. And I'm quite happy with that normally. So I tend to shave a little bit less often. I might go every other day between shaves. I do like to rest my face, but I almost never will go two days or more without without having a shave. What I tend to do on holiday, because I find it really, really relaxing, and it's nice to have the time to do it properly, is to do a full wet shave with hot and cold towels and multiple passes, you know, make sure I get my a really good foaming lather. I tend to wet shave once, twice a week anyway and, and use an electric razor the rest of the time. But when I'm on holiday, I can really go to town and pamper myself. How about you, Zach? What do you do? Generally, I tend to shave every other day unless I'm, I know I've got lots of meetings as a rule. Yeah, no, I tend to shave a little bit less. I cannot go more than three or four days without shaving unless I'm unwell. And as you said, I mean, it depends on the place, it depends where I am. I tend to like getting shaved if we're going for a proper dinner. Yep. I tend to use lighter fragrances as well. I will only take one fragrance generally on holiday rather than having the palestra that I seem to, yeah. <laughs> to collect here. With shampoo and conditioner I tend to, if it's a good hotel I'll use theirs, but I tend to take everything else because I tend to find it's not always great quality so the moisturisers and the hair gels and stuff like that I tend to take. The only thing I tend to take more of is deodorant. Yes, yes. Well, one thing I quite often like to do is if I'm going on holiday, you know, I tend to over the year build up a few little samples of things either out of magazines or that I've got from when I've purchased stuff and often I'll take those with me on holiday just because it's a chance to play an experiment and I'll maybe wear something I haven't worn before and give it a trial for a day or two and see how that goes and also when you've got a couple of hours to kill it duty free that can be a time to pick some of those up for more tips on holiday grooming guides please go over to the magazine so we're heading off to the interview now we have a fantastic interview for a holiday issue it's with the founders of Verve Rally Deshana and Marcus they're a married couple they are entrepreneurs and they decided to uh, marry their love of travel and Marcus's love of cars and set up this Verve Rally company so taking cars um, across Europe it's affordable luxury it's a nice price point it's not exorbitant well worth checking out because it's not all about driving it's not nine hours of driving it's they're capping it at four hours of driving a day so let's hand over to Marcus and Dashana and myself where I interviewed them unfortunately it was one of the lovely rainy days in London so you might hear a huge thunderstorm appear in the background of the interview so let's hand over to them I am very happy and honoured to have Dashana and Marcus from Verve Rally here with me today. Um, hello, good afternoon to you guys. Thank you for having us. Good afternoon. So, um, I've known you both for a little while, uh, Marcus for a little bit longer, I think. Um, but, uh, and you were doing something very, very different before um, the Verve Rally. So, I'd like to sort of start with what were you doing previously? And then sort of we'll move up to Verve Rally. Yeah, migrate forward. So we have a background in events. So combined between Deshana and I, we've got about 20 years experience in events. Uh, My last company, we grew into four countries. We're in Australia, UK, Singapore and Tampa, Florida. And primarily in business, business functions, business conferences and things like that. So it was really sort of last year sort of sort of we got to the point where we grew that business and was ready for a, a new challenge a change change of gears so to speak pardon the pun and uh, and uh, so sort of we sort of I sold out of that last business and we had a chat on what, what next 
uh, and Dejana have sort of taken us over on, on sort of the creation of Verve and how that came about, but that's sort of how it sort of happened. But we've got a background in events and marketing. And, uh, and you're not from uh, these fair shores, Marcus. Where, where are you from originally? I originally hail from Australia. Whereabouts? Uh, East Coast. So I grew up near Melbourne. And then late high school, I moved to a little town about an hour north of Brisbane called uh, Sunshine Coast. It's a very sleepy little town on the beach. Uh, university in Brisbane, and then moved to these fair shores, as you say, uh, about nine years ago now. So, okay. British citizen two years ago. And okay, and what were you doing in Australia before you came here? Again, events. We were doing events, event marketing. We were a national company at the time, so we were travelling between all of the, the major cities, and it was a very sort of antisocial lifestyle to sort of service that market for the, the, the way the business was growing. We had to be in all, in all places. And that was largely the reasoning between myself and the business partner at the time to move to the UK to service a similar population within the M25, which is quite attractive at the time, and the strong pound at the time uh, sort of brought us across and sort of hadn't looked back. So it was, it was business that brought you here, nothing yeah. else? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you miss most about Australia? Family. Yeah, really family. It's a long way. It's even difficult to catch up through Skype. You know, even that's a blessing, but it's a... Skype's a blessing, but uh, it's very difficult to... The time zone difference is very difficult. So we get back at least once a year these time, you know, these days. So we do catch up, but you do miss those those moments, especially my nieces are growing up very, very quickly, and you know, it's, it's sad to sort of miss them. So. What else do you miss? It must be something else. Oh, I mean, the, the weather's lovely. <laughs> but I particularly, we, we particularly love travelling. Right. So, and it's... And you just, it's just not possible to do a weekend break in Australia. There's, uh, and we like the variety of cultures and, and experiencing something different. And, and Australia's got very pretty locations and, and all over. The, they're lovely people, easy to get along, but it's, it's very much homogenous. It's very, very similar and vanilla. Uh, and it's at least nine hours to get anywhere that's remotely different and sort of expand your horizons. And uh, I sort of consider myself as a global sort of citizen and and really do appreciate different cultures and ways of life and foods and things like that. And so that's important. And from here, you can do that. Over there, it's just not possible. So that's hence why we're, you know, large part of why we're here, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna, I've, got a lot, I've got quite a few questions yeah. on my list. But, Deshana, so, so tell, tell us about you. How did you sort of... What is your back, background before you met this young, lovely young man? Oh, I was born and raised in India, and then I moved to Singapore, where I had my career in media, advertising, and events. I was a general manager for event company, and I met Marcus through work. Uh, it's funny we we worked together for a couple of years before we even started seeing each other. I'll so come back I, to that. No, you're not allowed yeah. to get that story yet. No, you're going to hold on that story. <laughs> and uh, how old were you when you moved to Singapore? Uh, it was five years ago, uh, and literally I moved here to start a business. I didn't, although Marcus was a strong reason for me to move here, I didn't want to have all eggs in one basket. So <laughs> I started, uh, I came here on an entrepreneur visa, invested in this country, employed people, and five years later, now I have a nice British citizenship, and I intend to be here long term. Cool. And so how long were you in Singapore for? I was in Singapore for close to nine years. So, from India to Singapore to England, what's the similarities and what's the differences? <laughs> Having travelled the world, the one thing I know for sure is all people everywhere are pretty much the same. The way we express ourselves is different. There are different cultures. 
And I personally enjoy the diversity that the world brings. It's made me a very tolerant person. I'm eager to learn. And I can gel with people quite well because I listen carefully to what their needs and values are. So having traveled quite a lot, it has enriched my experience of life. And also I feel that I have been able to attract success or like-minded people more effortlessly because I have had I have had the bandwidth to, to deal with many different cultures. So that was what is similar. What is different is definitely things like weather, food, it would be how like people like to relax. Like for instance in places like Singapore if you're working things can be sometimes quite transactional. I love the fact that here in England it's very relational. Uh, people take time to get to know each other uh, and then do business whereas in some other parts of the world they do business first and then try to get to know each other. So there are many cute little differences which again not, there's nothing right or wrong about it but it really at the end of the day comes back to who you are and how you want to see your life unfold. So, what's, what, so I asked Marcus what do you miss most about Singapore because Singapore you obviously were there for the longest period of time so so what, what do you miss about Singapore? I miss the rooftop bars <laughs> and the hotels and just the fact that after a long day of work you can sit outside and enjoy the warmth. Now, that's what I miss. I do miss the fact that it is such a tiny city that getting anywhere is a matter of 15 minutes. So your productivity is quite high. And also, people, there's a drop-in and drop-out culture, which means you can ring a friend and say, hey, I'm free, what are you doing? Let's catch up. Whereas in England, it's a lot more planned and scheduled and diarised, only because it takes about an hour or two to get to places. So, <laughs> so you assume it takes an hour to get anywhere in central London? Just assume it's taken now. Even if you're early, great. If you're not, that's fine. But it just takes an hour, you know. Yeah. I, I love Singapore. I am. Um, my father was there for 16 years, so I used to go every year. I love it. It's one of my favourite cities. But also, going to find it's got a great, um, it's got a great multicultural vibe. It's one of those wonderful cities, where, like London, where you kind of feel that everyone mingles together and just gets gets along, and there's no. You know, there's us, them, or segregation. Everyone's just there, and they get along. Mm. And the food's fantastic. And the, I was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> the hawker stores, I love it. Just food. Yeah, yeah, everything. Like you can have both ends of the range, and the quality is amazing. Oh yeah, it's great. No, I'm. I'm uh, so we, when we, we teach the various different things, perfect gentlemen. One of the things that you talk about is um, icebreakers. So how conversational icebreakers happen. And in England, it's always the weather. The weather is the first thing most people will talk about. That's a conversation. If you want to talk to a complete stranger, the weather is the way to do it. In Singapore, it's food. What restaurants do you go to? What's your favourite food? Where's your favourite restaurant? And that's the that's the conversational icebreaker. Whether it's in a taxi, or, I loved that. I thought that was great. That's that, that's that a good reason. That is so true. That is so true. So uh, so okay. So you came here, um, worked. I, I'm actually now going to ask the question. So you have to be quiet for a second. Yeah. How, how did you meet Deshana and how did you uh, go out with Deshana? And, and then we'll get the, the most, the, the important question out in a minute. We first met through work. Right. We actually, we used to negotiate on contracts, uh, <laughs> literally. So it was a professional relationship initially. Uh, and then there was a project that I was over in Singapore um, for towards the latter half uh, of one year. And she'd recently come 
sort of single. And sort of that sort of threw the office, got back to me pretty quickly. <laughs> and, uh, and sort of dinners with the, and like she said, after work culture, so dinners with the, the team uh, ended up whittling down to sort of just dinners between, between us. Uh, and we just really clicked. So from romantically, we sort of clicked as well and not just professionally. Uh, but that sort of project sort of was coming to a conclusion, uh, and then the decision going because I'm my life was definitely in London. It's my business is here. Her life is in Singapore. Neither of us really believe have a strong belief in long term relationships unless you can actually see it, some sort of end of the tunnel. You know, there's got to be some resolution there, uh, and so we had a you know a sort of conversation around that. And I said, well, that's easy. Just come to London and, you know, and, and we'll sort it out. You get a job here. And he's like, you start a business, like, you know, sort it out. And she's like, no, no, first, like, I don't know you that well. You know, uh, before I do all of that, you move to Asia for at least six months. And if it, if it works, then I'll, you know, up sticks and, and, and head on over. So I said, okay, we'll pause there five minutes <laughs> on the call and spoke to my business partner at the time and said, look, got this project out here. I was over there for a project. This can extend out. The rest of the team is here. It kind of works. What do you think of the idea if I move out to Singapore for six months? Is that possible? And he said the time, look, there's also a girl involved and she's amazing and she's the one like, you know, you can't say no. <laughs> and he says, in that case, sure. So uh, so that's sort of how it happened. So I actually moved over to Singapore and and, uh, and we ended up moving into moving to Bali, actually, which Tashana can tell more about, but sort of the company she was managing had a resort as well in Bali that was uh, they wanted her to oversight into and, and sort of help lift the performance of the, of the villas. So we had this opportunity, a fantastic opportunity to move to Bali for six months. So, yeah, that's sort of how it sort of all panned out. It's a nice way to start a relationship yeah. moving here, living in Bali, I have to say. I mean, <laughs> the people are listening there thinking, oh, I've, I've moved into Brooklyn or Clapham, and they're like, no, no, Bali. Yes. Here we go. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible time. So, okay, Deshana, I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. So what first attracted you to Marcus? Ooh. <laughs> Keep it clean when we're back. Like is PG. That's, yeah. that's <laughs> it's all in the name. It's all in the name. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, before I met Marcus, I could barely pronounce his last name. Uh, I even remember making fun of it, saying, what are these three letters and why are they put together? Makes no sense. <laughs> now I've got the last word. You both. <laughs> Oh, gosh, it bites you. Um, but the first thing that I, I admired Marcus is, um, you know, we, we worked together, and, and it was not what he said, it was what he didn't say. Marcus was very reassured about who he was. He owned the company, but nothing about him would, there was no arrogance, there was no, in everything he did, he gave it 100%, but didn't. Uh, there was, he was very, came across as a very, very balanced and sincere person. Um, I had a mutual, ad, there was an admiration for the kind of person he was, and I was like, that's such a good guy, such a great guy. Uh, and initially when we met, there was, from my end, because I was um, uh, with someone else, I was like, you know, he's a great guy, and I wish him all the best, and he'd be great for one of my girlfriends or something like that but nothing beyond the more I got to know him and this is when I was single um, the more I, I realized that he has very strong family values he is smart and intelligent um, and I must say 
for a lot of people they'd say oh my god he's good looking but for me the looks came uh, kind of gradually it was something that was gradual for me and now I think he's the hottest man alive (laughs) 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 but that wasn't the first thing I think it was more the person uh, and his relationship with himself and his relationship with how he treated others which was quite attractive Cool. That's excellent. And barley, huh? Really? Yeah. I just I'm still that's that not. Was hard work. It was hard work. Yeah, it was really tough. It's a hard hard way to start a relationship. Yeah, it is. <laughs> really tough. It could be harder ways to start a relationship. So did you? So there's no official first date because you just kind of went into this. Right? Yeah, it's not really official yeah. though. It was sort of dinners, sort of transpired from yeah. team dinners yeah. to, yeah. to, to, to then to dropping out and yeah then saying yeah. no you guys go ahead that's alright you guys will talk to each other all night yeah. and ignore us yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay so the question is then yeah, proposed yeah. I, I, please tell me the story Dasha. I think Marcus really yes, yeah. no 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 I always like the lady to tell this ooh okay alright I'll do that so, turns out, um, after Marcus had moved to Bali and he'd done it six months, it was my turn now to honour my side of my promise, and that was to move to England. So, I went back to Singapore, I sold the apartment that I had opposite Sentosa, I started getting my visa work done, and there was a nice two months separation period where I had to get my ducks in the line to come here. Ultimately, I got into the country, I got my visas and everything sorted, and we had this date. So Marcus is like, great, I'll come pick you up at the airport and, and we'll go out and stuff like great. So here I am on an airplane, all butterflies in my stomach, and I'm like, this is great, new new world. A part of me was like, I'm leaving behind all my friends and my world, but, but I was still excited. I, I, it was more excitement in my belly than, uh, than fear. I landed at the airport and Marcus comes to pick me up and I was like very excited and he came with flowers and all that, it was like so lovely. I'm like, where are we going out tonight? I've slept in the plane for a long time. No, 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 we have an early start tomorrow, we're going to bed tonight. And I'm like, that doesn't work. I've just like slept for eight hours on a flight. I'm excited <laughs> about being here. I've, I've got... It just didn't make sense. I'm like, maybe he's a different person. <laughs> we'll find out. Anyways, next morning comes and he's like, we have an early start. So it was 6.30, 7 in the morning, which is very early for me. And it was a Saturday morning. So I'm like, what? It happened to be the 12th of February. So I thought it's like, you know, maybe on Valentine's Day, which was a Monday, he's busy. And therefore it might be a Valentine's thing. And that's going on in the background. We go to this really nice place where everyone's making love hearts with chocolate. It was a chocolate making class. It started at 8 a.m. in the morning somewhere in Farringdon and um, coupled with a lot of champagne. So had a bit of that. I was pretty much drunk by 11 <laughs> in the morning. Post flight. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm like, okay. And, and, uh, and then um, I was the only girl that that morning and there were many other couples there but I was the only person who got a big fudge cake with like I love you on it from Marcus and I'm like oh that's so sweet why didn't the others get anyway but I was like let's go on I was like Marcus I need to have some sushi or something to sober me up so we went and had a beautiful um, lunch at a sushi restaurant and then he had something else planned and I'm like no 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 I want to go home and I want a power nap for two hours because I feel a bit wasted he's like okay we went home, we set the alarm, had a par nap, and then he's like, there's a car waiting outside for us. 
And I was like, this is a bit, what is going on here? Anyways, I'll go with the flow. And for a second, I was like, is, could this be something big? And I was like, Dishana, don't ever set yourself up for failure. Get that thought out of, or you just enjoy the now. I did that. There's a beautiful car outside. Um, got in, and Marcus took me to this very nice, lovely restaurant where we could see the view of London. And then there was this guy in a baby piano playing beautiful Elton John songs. And there comes a, to- a song which Anne Marcus connected on, on a few months ago, and that was your song. And Marcus looks into my eyes and starts singing it. And at that point, it was a bit too much. And I was like, oh my God, I had like tears in my eyes. And we both were like tearing up. And just then he got down on one of his knees and proposed with a big ring. Uh, And that's when I was like, oh my God, really? And I'm like, yes. (laughs) And the ring was on my finger and I, I was like, ah. And the lady came running, saying, "What happened? Is everything okay?" And 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 after that it was congratulations, and that, that's that. Okay, thanks for that, Zach. Really interesting interview. And that trip sounds like a lot of fun. It makes me wish I had some time to to do it. Yeah, an interesting, a lovely couple. More from the interview and uh, our ten gentlemanly questions, which is very fun because we haven't done it with a couple. Yes. So we'll get a couple's into ten gentlemanly questions. Um, That'd be great. In a couple of weeks' time. So, uh, so that's the end of this week. So our first week, July, um, Independence Days in Canada and America earlier this week. hope we've entertained you over your holiday week of The Perfect Gentleman, and we look forward to speaking to you next week. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thanks, Jack. Great to speak to you again. Great to speak to you too, James. Our wonderful partners, the English Cream Tea Company, deliver a fresh take on tradition. The English Cream Tea Company offers quintessentially British gifts. Choose from the freshly prepared afternoon tea hampers to be hand-delivered right to your door throughout mainland UK, or select from a range of gift vouchers. There are also postable gifts of award-winning chocolate brownies, tea, delicious shortbread, and even cheese please tuck tins with delicious cheese scones and chutney. After all, the perfect gentleman needs to be able to send the perfect gift, whether it's to say thank you, congratulations, or season's greetings. And the English Cream Tea Company supplies that, complete with your own personalised gift message. Who do you know who would not love the gift of afternoon tea? So go to theenglishcreamtea.com for a charming touch of British indulgence. This podcast is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nichol at the Pistachio Palace. 